Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And this show is presented by Mercury Mile. Now is the time to stock up on your warm weather gear. Winter is officially gone. It's now about to be May. Let's get your warm gear ready, and there's no better place to do it than Mercury Mile. Go to mercurymile.com, enter your sizes and preferences, and they'll send you a box of curated running goodies to you. You keep what you love, you send back what you don't, and it's the convenience of just staying in your house and getting the best products available. Literally, the best brands, the best running brands out there all work with Mercury Mile, and they have their own stuff as well. In addition, you'll get great prices. So I can't recommend them highly enough. And if you and if you use code, excuse me, if you use code RAMBLINGRUNNER10 at checkout, you will save $10 off your stylist fee. This episode today is with Michelle Ruse. Michelle is somebody who has done just some really interesting things from a running perspective, balancing it with some very uh, high-profile and stressful jobs from a sales perspective. And this was a conversation a little bit unlike some of my previous conversations where this was much more process-based. Michelle is, you know, as you'll hear, has really done a lot of interesting things, like I just said, and has experienced a lot of results. You know, this is someone who is on the cusp of breaking three hours in the marathon, which is a huge deal. And yet, we talk about how that is fulfilling and in some ways unfulfilling. And I think this is a very real conversation. She is very open and frank, and I think you'll really like it. In in the uh, in the episode, she references an article that she wrote for Runner's World, and I have um, put that in the show notes. So if you want a link to that, you can check it out there. But in the meantime, I hope you like this episode with Michelle Ruse. Hello, Michelle, and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. Thank you, Matt. I'm so excited to be here today. Oh, I'm so excited to have you on the show. I actually had the the chance to meet you in person at CIM this year, and uh, that's always fun to actually connect with people who... you, know, you just kind of follow all their running stuff and uh, being able to see you in person was, was, was pretty fun. It was like one of those like family reunion type atmospheres yeah. at CIM. I don't know what your experience was, but for me, it was like, it was like almost hard to explain to people once they came back to Rhode Island, what the atmosphere was like. It's, it's so true. I actually, I ran CIM for the first time in 2013 and the only people I knew there were Laura Anderson, uh, formerly and Heather Suba, formerly both now married, but we all hung out and like that was our first time meeting. I was still in the running blogging space. So I had like a little bit of a network and then going back last year, it was just a totally different experience. And I mean, to your point, exactly. It was, it felt like a family reunion and uh, it was such a fun little getaway to, to be in this little running nerding out world that we all share. So it was cool. That's interesting. See, I didn't know you were in the, the running blogging space back in the day. <laughs> yeah, that's how I got my uh, <laughs> my start. I was actually in living in New York City. I went to school there, and it was really hard to find friends, actually. Um, going to school in Manhattan, it was, it was hard because most people are there for vastly different reasons. You know, some people are there for finance. Some people are there for acting. But there's, like, this one common thing that everybody's super driven, and and because of that, it causes this like super separation in everybody's schedules and days. So it was really hard to actually find friends in college that had something in common with what you were doing. So 
instead, I actually took to Instagram and social media, like a lot of other people at the time, and um, started writing a blog. I think it was um, my sophomore year of college. Um, it was called Positively Delightful with a P-A-W, um, like a dog paw. Um, <laughs> and I just started like growing friends that way. And now some of my closest friends to date are people that I literally met on the internet, which I know is pretty common these days, but to everybody else, it sounds pretty strange. So, Yeah, especially for that time of your life. I think when I think about my college days, or I've been working at a college ever since I graduated from college. So I'm 37. Literally half of my life has been on a college yeah. campus at this point. And it's one of those things that I've always said to people was basically like, you're never getting another time in your life, especially during your freshman year, when you can just go up to somebody randomly, start talking to them out of nowhere. And it's like, not only acceptable, but it's like encouraged. Yeah, 100%. But, I, but obviously when you're, sounds like your college experience was maybe a little different. So wh- where did you go in New York? I went to school at NYU um, and I went to the Gallatin School of Individualized Study, which means that you essentially don't pick a major. You define your major that um, you basically define it in year two as like a three page kind of intent of study. And then you can take classes throughout any of the colleges. And then in year four, you have to defend your, I guess, thesis over uh, you choose a panel of three professors that you've like connected well with or liked their teaching style. Um, And then you have to have a book list of like, I think it's like 20 books that reference like four different time periods. And then you basically have to have an hour and a half long dialogue with the professors, tying all these different time periods and themes together to ultimately prove why your thesis, you know, was what it was. And then they basically deliberate for like 10 minutes afterwards and either you pass and you can graduate or you fail. It's called the colloquium and um, either you fail and then you have to kind of do it again, or I guess come back for another semester if you push it till the last semester. So you either pass or fail depending on an hour and a half long conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> oh my God. I didn't been, hear of many like, people failing, but there were definitely uh, some people who don't go in as prepared and either leave in tears or are very stressed out. Um, luckily, I, I kind of am an over-preparer, so I went into it pretty confident. And I, uh, it, was, I, it was something that I enjoyed doing. I love being creative. So being able to be creative and kind of how I think and you know, work with my education was really, really kind of neat. And NYU is a huge school. And... It's so interesting that, you know, considering how big NYU is, um, that the co- that your college experience was kind of unlike what most people experience, especially for people who go away to a college. So when you, or, or university, I should say, when you went to NYU and you had that initial experience, obviously you didn't have to stay there. So what was the calculus that you went through in terms of figuring out whether or not that was the best place for you and how you wanted to proceed um, kind of with your life and your studies in a way that was going to make it, you know, enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, it's kind of funny that you asked that because I had actually, um, I had already printed out my transfer applications probably by November of my freshman year. Um, I was like set on leaving. I like, didn't love it. My boyfriend at the time and who I'm still dating 10 years later, um, he was about to deploy for the military and go to base or to boot camp. And so I was just in a bad space and I was like, I don't have any friends. There's no like college sports to like get riled up around. Like, I hate this place. It's really, it just feels like empty. 
And my parents were like, stick it out for the first year, see what it becomes. Um, and if after the second semester of freshman year, if you hate it, like then we can think about things. Um, and of course I loved it. Um, and I actually, I actually lived with the RA freshman year, um, and another roommate. So we had a triple and, um, the the RA basically said that that's so common and really it's kind of reverse for a lot of NYU students. It's like, you don't really love your first year. You get to grow on it second. And then by the fourth, you're like obsessed with New York and you never want to leave kind of an atmosphere. So it was definitely true for me. And, um, you know, part of the reason I stuck around is I did see the value um, in the opportunities that New York City presented itself to me. So beyond just my education, um, I was able to get internships so much quicker and so much easier, not only just through the summer, but also through my actual like academic semesters because I was there and available to just, you know, go to Midtown or go to wherever for an internship if, if I needed to. So I felt like I saw the value while I didn't have as much fun and I didn't get to go to football games or basketball games. We were D3 and football was deemed too dangerous at one point. So uh, we didn't have any of the sports, but um, I kind of got my fill um, just from kind of being able to get different career opportunities from it. So, Well, Michelle, I got to be honest, as a former D3 athlete, I resent that. Um, you know how dare you besmirch d3 basketball uh no but um with that being with that being said um why did you then i guess move into the running space just not only like as a runner but in uh from a blogging perspective as well like what was the initial uh the initial draw and how did it kind of grow over time yeah so i guess this kind of predates a long time back before college so I started running in fourth grade, actually. Um, Fourth grade, we had this day called Orange and Black Day. It was our elementary school got one afternoon to go up to the high school track and compete in like an afternoon of just like track and field events. And so I remember participating in the 400 meter dash. Um, I lost by like a hair and I still um, I lost against this girl in my grade, Emma Whiteley who also ended up at NYU, surprisingly, um, but she's a dancer. And so I, it still like burns me to this day that I lost by like a hair anyway. So I uh, started my love for running back then. And then I kind of grew to track and field in middle school and then ultimately added in cross country in high school. So I was doing also basketball. Um, I'm six foot tall. So most people who see me, they're like, oh, do you either play basketball or volleyball? And I'm like, no, like, I'm a runner and they're kind of like, look at me funny. Um, But so running has always been the thing that kind of like inspired me. And it's a lot because of my sister. So she's six years older than I am. um, And she was always a sprinter in high school. So I kind of went a different route and went more distance. Um, So I ran cross country and loved it. Um, Took a leadership role pretty early on in high school. And kind of, I loved that mentoring aspect that I could have then on the freshman as I was a senior. Um, And then really going into college, I really had to make that decision of, okay, do I want to run for NYU, which is a great program, um, or do I want to take my own time and run for myself? Um, And it was this point in my life where I was kind of, um, I actually wrote an article for Runner's World about making the decision to not run in college. And a large part of it was that I wanted to feel more independent in my schedule. And I'd been on, you know, somebody else's schedule for so long where it was go to high school, go to track practice, come home, eat dinner, do your homework and do it all over again. And then on, you know, and then you had meets and then weekend practice. It just, 
I didn't have a life outside of any of that. Um, and so a large part of my reason for not running in, in college was, you know, just wanting to have a freedom. And so my sister actually started running marathons when she got to college. So I kind of followed in her path. And um, I ran my first half marathon freshman year and my first full marathon, the Philadelphia uh, marathon freshman or sophomore year, first semester. So um, I think it was a long So hold on, yeah, hold on, to, hold on. I got, I got to jump in. <laughs> <laughs> I got to jump in. So first of all, we're going to link up that article in the show notes. Um, so if anyone's interested in reading yeah. it, but I will say it is an interesting um, evolution from, I don't want to run in college because of like the time constraints yeah, right? and kind of, you know, and having like being on other people's schedules to them being like, but you know what sounds like a great idea? The marathon. It wasn't that I didn't love running. I just wanted to do it like on my time. Um, right. And so I think of your former uh, interviewees, um, I did the Hal Higdon plan um, as, as most people do when they're starting out. So I, I did that, the beginner plan maybe, um, and decided to, I think I remember I was like on the treadmill close to like midnight on like the fall, the spring semester of uh, freshman year. So the spring before uh, the Philadelphia marathon. And I remember like stairs in the treadmill and like hating being there and just like wanted to like throw myself into something. And I went back up to my dorm and I signed up for the Philadelphia marathon. Um, that was my sister's first one as well. And it's close to home. We're from I'm actually from Europe originally, but we grew up in a town called York, Pennsylvania. So not too far from Philly, but so that's kind of like how I did it. And then I remember being super kind of like lackadaisy about my training. Like I would do it, but like, I would definitely skip runs like midweek. Um, and like, didn't really understand the full idea around consistency that is so prevalent in so much of the running conversation today. Yeah. And you're also in a situation where, you know, it's, it's, you're doing something that is almost anathema to the people who are your peers in college, mm -hmm. right? Like you're, you're participating in a sport, but not doing it in a college setting and not doing it in the way that would even, you know, tangentially hold you accountable to other people. Yeah. Right. So it's like, it's so easy, I think for people in those circumstances. And I think this is why you know running communities of all shapes and sizes and mediums are so important is that it's so easy to be like, Hey man, you know, whether it's subconsciously or consciously be like, if I don't go for my run right now, like no one's going to care. Yeah. No one's going to know. And to just kind of run with it. And even for a driven person like you, I can totally see that. Yeah. hundred percent. I think that's exactly it. And it was kind of like, I was tired or I had, homework or it was, I didn't really understand the impact of not doing your training to the fullest because I'd never done a marathon. I had just done a half and, you know, it wasn't something that I was super in tune with. So, um, definitely learned from my mistakes. I hit the wall pretty hard at like <laughs> 16 in Philly, but you know, <laughs> learn from your mistakes. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've come a long way since then. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, so what was it? Do you, not that it matters, but what was the time? Yeah, I, I crossed uh, 342 flat. So I was definitely happy with the time um, considering the, the training. Yeah. But um, I, I crossed 342 and then I ran two other marathons and I did 345 or 346 and then 342. So for 
probably two or three years, I was like, I'm never, ever going to break 340. Like, it's not possible. And I remember talking to my old high school coach, and he knew somebody that was like running a 335. And I was like, Oh, my God, like, that just that just seems so impossible. Um, And I was like, I'm never going to get there. So I was kind of stuck in that world for a while, which I know fast forward, it's kind of crazy to think that I just ran a 305 at uh, CIM in December, which I would have obviously never thought was even possible. So and it's interesting that you quickly went to that that belief of like, all right, this is going to be like, I, I'm not going to be able to cross yeah. this barrier, right? This 340 hurdle. And it's one of those things where, um, shoot, who was I talking to? It might have been my, you know what? It was actually, and I'm not ashamed to say this. I think it was, I was talking to my therapist last week and we were talking about like, you know, comparing ourselves to other people. And I remember saying to him, when I finally believed this, is that like, like, like that whole comparison thing is almost like fire is like it can be good or bad yeah and i feel like in this case it would it probably would have been like good for you to like on some level like compare yourself to other people like hey look at these people who i know who, who've done this like i could do that you know what i mean it's like it's like that belief of like hey you know you don't want to put yourself in a negative space through comparison but there's other ways to like broaden your perspective and be like i'm an able-bodied person look at these other able-bodied people who can do these things. If you just put in the time and effort required, like maybe my, maybe my limits are a lot different than I think. they are. Yeah. I think a lot of it is you don't know what you don't know. So for me, yeah, a lot true. of it was like, this is, I've done training. I've had coaches like, this is just what I, and like more so in high school, I mean, is like, I thought I had been kind of like pushed to my limit, which obviously I, I wasn't. Cause I was probably doing like 30 miles a week in high school. Who knows? Not even maybe, but so just kind of n- like not really understanding that this whole other world of like an actual coach and training plan, like, I feel like that didn't really exist. So I actually, so I ran my first marathon in 2011 and then I was kind of in the running blogging world, like starting shortly thereafter, just to kind of like make friends and, you know, go to meetups and, you know, we, I know we ended up starting like some happy hours in the city where it was just like a bunch of people from Instagram and Twitter, actually Twitter was the more popular like forum back then more so than Instagram. And I remember we would meet up and like have happy hours, but I ended up actually meeting my first coach at um, a running store in New York called Paragon, um, Josh Mayo. He uh, was a coach for um, Gotham city runners. And I remember going up to him and I was like, Hey, I want to Boston qualify but I have run a 342. Like, do you think it's even possible? And he was like, yeah, like, of course. So I signed on with him at the beginning of must have been, must have been the beginning of 2013 because I ran my first BQ at Marine Corps, um, October of 2013. So that was, yeah, that was probably like a season and a half of training with him. Um, and I really, I dropped, I dropped 18, 18 minutes. I think I went from 342 to 326 with him. So that was like my first big leap and shift. And were you working in the fashion industry at this point or were you still in college? So I guess kind of to go back in parallel, um, the reason why I picked NYU, um, I, so I was modeling a little bit in high school my senior year. And I really wanted to kind of give it a go. Everybody always told me that I should try it. Um, I'm naturally pretty thin, but I'm still athletic. So I'm quite like 
not super muscular in any sense of like, I'm not like a buff gym rat or anything, but I've got, you know, I've got some thighs and, you know, a butt from running hills and things like that. So it was kind of this like weird dynamic where I'm really tall, but I'm not super lanky. Like I I could never do runway. So I tried to give it a go. And that's why I moved to New York because I really wanted to give it a shot. But my parents, smart as they were, said, you know, that's fine. You can try and do both, but you can't take a year off from school to like do just modeling. Like you either go to school and do it or you don't do it at all. So I I tried doing, I was signed with an agency for two years. It was a terrible, terrible experience um, to the point where it was consistently about losing weight. Um, So then I started asking if I could do fit modeling and I was never fit enough. Um, Like it was just consistent, like negative feedback of, um, not being worthy or not being good enough. And so I eventually just like had enough of it being unreliable and non-transparent. And so, you know, for me, I've always been a smart girl as well. So I've relied a lot on my brains and wanting to pursue, you know, a career for myself. So modeling was just something that I wanted to try out and see what would pan out, but it was never something that I was going to rely on. And to hear those kinds of messages, um, especially related to a goal, uh, is never easy, but I feel like it's even harder at that stage in your life when you heard it. I mean, we, I, you know, I'm working on a college campus. This, these are topics that come up all the time with any constituency group, but especially with two-year-old women on campus. It's like this is something that student affairs departments on campus, like they are hypersensitive to. And for good reason. So when you were going through this, and I say this kind of foreshadowing an episode I'm going to be doing in a couple of weeks with Carrie Tollison, we're literally going to be talking about this exact topic. But when you were going through that, how did that affect you? And how do you view that time now that you have the distance and kind of the, the, you know, the, the hindsight, you know, to, you know, to, to really kind of a, I'm trying to phrase this the right way to really look at it in the proper perspective and, you know, with with the proper judgment? Yeah. I mean, I think the best way I like it for sure. I don't think it ever messed me up to the point. And and I don't think you were alluding to this, but I think I'll just state the obvious. Like I never had an eating disorder from it, but I think they, it definitely messed me up to the point where I would, I even remember this back in fresh or in senior year of high school, um, you know, for lunch, I would try and eat like an orange, and basically a coffee and then I would go to track practice afterwards and um, obviously there's so much more knowledge these days about how you can be you can you know boost your metabolism and be even more fit by eating more eating the right things eating fat actual fat like I feel like there wasn't that type of um, like discussion or conversation um, in like 2000 nine to 2011 it was all about like don't eat like you know basically minimal calories and so it was definitely it was definitely a time where it was not like I didn't view myself very well I was very you know size conscious of course um but I think for the most part I have a really support um you know a supportive family whoops sorry um I have a really supportive family and friend group so um what I really learned from it is to take what it like was able to teach me, take the silver lining, but um, don't really rely on it so heavily. And, and I've been so much more 
stronger without it, um, knowing that I can rely on myself for my brain and, you know, not necessarily for my body or relying on my body for other things like running marathons or, you know, being able to walk everywhere or be healthy. Um, it's just put a different spin on how I view myself and how I value myself, because I think it's such a negative space, uh, even still today. And they've come a long way with, you know, body respect and, you know, appreciating all sizes, but it's, it's brutal. So I, I applaud anybody who's in it and can do it. But for me, it was like, okay, I got to wipe my hands clean and, and put myself to use for something that's a lot better and, and more valuable. So yeah, and it sounds like you had a lot of support there, which obviously is very important and, you know, can be vital with these sorts of things. And, you know, besides just the explicit, you know, commentary that yeah. you received, you know, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of things that can kind of come through um, to individuals where they might not be told anything by, an by another person, but they have this internalized pressure to reach certain standards of beauty or certain shapes or sizes or what have you that can really kind of mess them up or can really kind of set them on a dangerous path. So when you, you know, say you were to talk to somebody who was going through that sort of challenge or talk to an individual who was trying to help someone going through that challenge, what are some of the things, especially that age group, 18 to 22, what are some of the things that you would focus on in terms of trying to ensure that they you know, are living a healthy lifestyle um, and not one that could be potentially dangerous? Yeah. I mean, I guess first I would, I would ask them what they're trying to get out of that. Um, if it's just validation that they're beautiful or that they're a certain size, I would challenge them to, to think otherwise and for them to think of themselves in a different light and try and see what else they feel like they're really good at or what they're really confident at. Um, really trying to pull out those. And it, it's totally fine to be confident about yourself if you think you're beautiful or gorgeous or whatever. Like, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with thinking that you are a, you know, beautiful person. I think that's great. But I think challenging somebody to see the other parts of you that aren't necessarily highlighted um, in a picture is, I think, one of the best ways for especially younger girls who are struggling with just that comparison game. I mean, I think it's crazy that all these kids that are now, I know in high school and middle school have like Instagram and that's all they compare themselves to. And it's, it's hard. It's just, and I, I probably, you know, see it so much in some of the girls that like are now in my high school. And I, I'd love for me, for me to be a mentor for those people and just for them to see, you know, life is so much more than just, those pictures or what you look like it's just hard for them to see it when that's their daily existence but I think really challenging them to see kind of beyond what that is and I think that a large part of that is um you know that responsibility falls on us as the older generation um you know who who have kind of become beyond that path and and have the responsibility to kind of instill that type of mentality and thinking in those girls who are growing up now, whether they're, you know, people we know, there are, you know, nieces, you know, whoever it is, like, it's kind of our responsibility to make sure that they're seen in a different light and they have a different kind of mentality and thought around everything. Yeah, that's really well said, Michelle. I really appreciate you, you, you talking about it like that. Um, and just kind of flip back to the running side. Um, I know there's yeah. no real easy transition there. But <laughs> I'll, just, no. I'll just go for it. Um, 
you know, so you, so after you start working with the coach, 2013, you run Marine Corps, you're able to kind of, you know, not only clear that 240 hurdle, but clear with abandon, right? You, you really drop down. Yeah. Um, and then from what I understand, oh, we've talked in the past, you kind of, there was, there seemed to be kind of a plateau there for yeah. a few years. So, so what was that like? And I know what, what was, was that something that you, that you worried about or that you were fine with now that you reached that, that BQ level and what was, what was happening there? Or how were you um, thinking about it as someone who I know is a very driven person? Yeah. Yeah. So I had um, worked with Josh to run that 326 in the fall of um, 2013. And then I had decided that I was going to try and break 320 the following fall at Philly again. Um, but at the same time, my sister and I were actually supposed to run New York City Marathon 2012 when Sandy hit. And so it was canceled the night before, obviously. And we had chosen to um, to defer our entry until 2014. So we were both signed up for 2014, but I also had signed up for Philly. So I had both of them back to back, three weeks apart. And so I had Ooh. leveraged his training plan again um, knowing that I had both and I was going to leverage New York city as my like last long run and then, um, r- try to break 320 at Philly. So I ended up running a 323 at New York, which is great. Like I had run the first 16 miles was kind of like my training effort. And then it was like, hold on for the last 10, um, which was kind of brutal last 10 miles. <laughs> um, and, and then I, I felt good going into Philly, um, talked to him the night before. He was like, I feel like you could run a 318, 319. Um, and I ended up running a 322. So it was a small PR um, from the, from obviously the three weeks prior, but it was still kind of disappointing because I had, I started feeling pretty crappy at like mile 10 of that race. I remember, I know when I feel crappy, when I take, I want to have to take my headphones out. Um, that's kind of like, a signal for me is like when it messes up my breathing and I just don't feel right. And I, I don't get into a groove. Um, so I basically ran the entire race without my headphones, um, and was just kind of, I finished crying and like, it was a mess. And so I had run two races again, back to back three twenty three, three twenty two, Um, and I was like, whatever, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go for it again. Um, and and see what I can do um I wasn't going to go for it that following spring because that's when we were running Boston for the first time so um we ended up my sister and I ran Boston like step for step together that was really special it was raining 2015 but it was an awesome experience so um I ended up then trying for breaking 320 one last time a third time in 2017 I basically took a almost a two year gap because I was so burnt out. Um, and I'll, I'll pause here because I don't know if you have any questions there before I jump into then what happened at Richmond 2017, where I ran my third 322. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, obviously so now, now you're really showing your cards as someone who's listened to the podcast before, like, you know, like, all right, I'm not gonna ask me <laughs> no, well, I know uh, I was talking forever and I was like, I, it's probably nice to get a, a little bit of a reprieve here. So <laughs> No, I'm loving this, Michelle. You're doing great. No, so I, I will say this, though. It's interesting that you burnt out because it's not necessarily a surprise hearing some yeah. of this, the the marathons that you did. When you hear yourself retelling that story, do you think about it differently now than you did in the moment in terms of kind of like how you transitioned through these marathons so quickly? Um, No, I don't think so. I mean, I think at the time... 
I had, I was really like, I had my sights set on breaking 320 and I, I really thought I could, but it, I, and then it was just kind of happened to be that I put New York back to back with Philly, which was probably a misstep, but ultimately it felt like it was kind of, that was kind of my life again, kind of going back to like the college thing of like, this was so, so different than all my friends were doing, but it felt like it was my thing. Like, and, and it felt like something that became part of my identity. And so a large part of my happiness and actually my boyfriend was in the military uh, for six years. So a a large part of us being long distance for six years was taken up with me throwing myself into these marathons um, and into the training so that I could occupy myself during deployments and things like that. So for me, it felt like it was the right thing to do, but um, I think it was too much of a good thing. Um, And we kind of ended up with running Boston as our kind of my sisters and I like last marathon together um, before she was going to have, you know, a family. So that was her kind of retirement party, if you will, from marathon running. And then I ended up taking two years off and didn't run my first marathon back until Helsinki, which was August of 2017. So I actually like randomly ended up joining a tennis team in New York City um, and was on the tennis team for like two years in between. So it was a nice thing to do in between. (laughs) So what was that like? Because you just mentioned that the running was really serves as this major part of your life for a lot of reasons. And then once you give it up and, you know, what, what was that transition like for you? Did, how did it affect your life? And what was it? Was it any different playing tennis? I mean, shoot, you came back to running. So it couldn't have been, <laughs> you know, it couldn't have been a silver. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, honestly, I don't really remember, like, I don't remember what happened in those years, but um, I I think I ended up running a little bit, but it wasn't like I was consistently in training. And I think that was the thing that like um, really got to me. And I think is something that is symptomatic of what I felt this current last, uh, this current spring. Um, And if we'll get to it, we can touch on it. But um, I felt felt really, really burnt out um, after basically CIM this past fall. So I think, um, you know, I think my identity is tied to running, but at the same time, it's more, my identity is tied to doing things that are a active and b challenging. And I feel like throwing myself into something like tennis was a lot more, you know, interesting at that point in time, because it was a lot more social. Um, it was something new. I got to kind of start excelling at something again, that wasn't just pure running and going out and logging miles. So for me, that was really exciting. And then getting to like play in games and in tournaments, like it was on a team that was, you know, not super competitive, a three O league in New York. So it was more just a social hour and it was something that occupied my time and was a lot of fun. But I think I ended up getting the kind of the bug again, probably late 16, early 17. And then that's when I had decided that I was going to sign up for the Richmond marathon, which was November, 2017. Um, so I ended up running Helsinki in August off of five weeks of training. That was rough. Um, highly do not recommend. Um, I cramped up. At- I, that's, I love that. I love that. Like I quit, quit you know, postpone running because I'm getting burnt yeah. out. What's the first race back? I know five weeks of training heading into yeah, a marathon. Exactly. It was just like, so was that, I know you're born in Finland. Yeah. So was the idea, was that, was that part of the reason that you really wanted to run that race? Yeah. So my sister and I had actually been wanting to run this race for the last probably four or five years. We've gone back to Finland every year um, since we moved to the States. So it's always been in the August timeframe, which is usually when we go back and visit our family. Cause that's the nicest time in the summer, but it's never worked out. And so p- planning my trip to Finland 
summer of 2017, I had seen that it was going to fall literally on the Saturday before I left on Sunday. And I was like, dude, I have to do this. This is like my one shot. It's, it's calling my name. And it was five weeks until the race. And I was like, whatever. I haven't, I've barely like run, I'd run probably five miles was the longest up to then. So I was like, whatever, I'm doing it. I signed up and um, I ran like 12, 16, 18, 20. And then I did the race and it was like really rough. <laughs> it was really rough. It ended up being the warmest Shocker. day in Helsinki as well in the summer. It, it, the race starts at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, which is the weirdest thing ever. Um, so it not only was like peak day of like peak heat of the day, but it was also the peak day of the summer so it was rough but it was really cool getting to have my parents and grandparents and cousins all there you know spectating because they all still live there I don't have any family in the states um so that was cool so when you came back as post Helsinki you're getting back into it did you come back with new goals or did you have did you just kind of pick up where you left off in terms of your approach to training and racing um, I still had 320 on my mind. Like I, I was set that in November I was going to break 320 in the marathon and I was using the same training plan that I had used for the previous two times that I had run 322. So, um, shocker that I still ran 322. Um, and then I, uh, so of course, like I, I finished Richmond, um, happy with another BQ, which qualified me for 2019, which I just ran. But again, I was like, come on, like, this is, you know, I, I should be grateful that I ran a eight second PR, but like, come on, I need to do something. So lo and behold, I was on, I think I was listening. Who was I listening to? Somebody had interviewed Sarah Bishop. Um, I think it was actually it was Lindsay, Lindsay Hine. Hine. Yeah. I was listening to her podcast and I was like, Hmm, who's this girl? And why is she in Virginia? I'm in Virginia. So I, um, I pinged her on Instagram and I was like, Hey, do you write training plans? And she was like, Hey, no, but I'm actually thinking about possibly getting into coaching. Like, let me know if you're interested. Um, and I was like, mm, okay, maybe. So she sent me an email and she was like, when are you signing up? Like, let's do this. And I was like, Oh God, okay. Are we doing this? So that was March of 2018. See, you work in sales. Did you appreciate the, uh, the forwardness? <laughs> I know. I was like, so it you, was. You, you, you work in sales at Salesforce, yeah. which is like, it's like being like, like a basketball coach for like yeah. NBA. It's like, of all places to work in sales, it's yeah. like you really have stuff together, yeah, uh, to it say was, the least. It was pretty quintessential sales. So it, needless to say, it worked. And um, uh, I signed up with her like March 8th of last year. So 2018 March. Um and I remember emailing her and being like, I feel so stuck. I run 322 now three times using the same plan. And she goes, Michelle, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results is called insanity. She's like, when are you ready to start this? And I was like, okay, I'm in. Um, and then five weeks later, I ran my first race under her and I dropped um, eight minutes in the 10 mile. So it was like dude, in, immediate dude. results. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, it was well, insane. So what, what do you chalk that up to? I mean, obviously five weeks is not a long period of time. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I know Sarah, she's been on the show a couple of times. Friends and a lot of her athletes have been on the show as well. So what happened during that five weeks? How much of it was physical? How much of it was mental in terms of getting ready for that race? Um, I think a lot of it was physical. I mean, for a long time, I hadn't, 
I had, I had a training plan obviously that was set, but it wasn't customized to like the fitness level that I was at. And I was just doing something that had been written five years prior. Um, and that's to no fault of my previous coach. That was just me being lazy and not hiring a new coach and not investing in my training plans. So I was just assuming and kind of going off of my old plans and seeing if they would work. So for, for first, I kind of had her, t- she had give, I'd given her times. And then, so she basically started writing two week out, two workouts a week um, and really consistent mileage. Like, I think that was one of the biggest things. And I, I think my second week with her, I had to go to Vegas for our big, um, I was at IBM at the time and I, we went for our conference and normally I would have probably not done my workouts or like pushed them off or done something. But like now I had her and I was like, Oh God, like, I have to be on the treadmill at like five in the morning running five by mile one, like five by one mile repeats. And I just remember like being so much more diligent and ha- that like that because I had her as a coach. Um, and I think the consistency and just the kind of effort that I put into those workouts were a lot more harder than what I had been doing previously. So I think my fitness was there because I had just run back to back marathons. Um, so it wasn't a problem with my fitness, but it was more just like that quick speed that she kind of pushed into my legs quite quickly and I mean when she said she was expecting me to run sub seven at that 10 mile race I was like this is a joke right like I had just run seven barely seven thirties I think at that at the army 10 mile or the the fall previously um and remember going out conservatively with my first mile hoping it was like seven forties like trying to be all conservative and now she was like okay you're starting out at seven to seven oh five and I was like oh my god this is not happening (laughs) And then I ran a 6.53 average. So it was like insane to me. Um, and I, I'll, I'll never forget it. She Skyped me at the finish line and she was like, you're going to break three hours in the marathon. And I was like, girl, you are crazy. I don't think so, but I'm happy with my 10 mile time. And here we are. So she's wonderful. So when you were getting ready for that race, you have this internal you know, kind of push and pull of, you know, you, you obviously trust Sarah yeah. because you, you know, you wouldn't have hired her if you didn't, but you're looking at like your recent results and experiences and saying like, this is not seem realistic. So how do you approach that race in a way that you're able to kind of push some of that negativity and really let your talent shine through? So I think a big thing of it was I trusted her very early on and it um, it's the same kind of premise that led me to be so successful at CIM this past December. Um, I trusted her plan. So I know the first mile of this race, I'm actually running this same race on Sunday. So I'm hoping to better my time from last year, but I know I just ran Boston. So um, this race is like the first mile is downhill. So she was like, be really conservative. Like I held my paces exactly to how she wanted them. Um, and my first mile was like seven Oh five. And my last mile was six thirty. Like it's insane. It, whatever Whoa. you, if you hold your, like hold your training plan, like good things happen. And that's exactly what I did at CIM. Um, and it yielded another 18 minute drop in my marathon time. So I just felt like based on me trusting her then and getting such good results, um, I just knew that if I put myself into my training plan for the fall, um, and summer, like, I could do, I didn't, I didn't know what I could do at, at, um, CIM, but I just feel like I had a lot of faith in her. So I kind of didn't know what to expect going into the race last year, the 10 miler that I'm doing this weekend, but, um, I just trusted her plan and, and I kind of went with it and it, it, she knows what she's doing. So. 
And I saw you post somewhere that the biggest change for you, besides the consistent mileage, which has really turned into high mileage, relatively yeah. speaking, um, not, not relative to, to me or anybody else, but just compared to your previous mileage. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's far higher than mine. <laughs> so it certainly yeah. is high compared to mine, but that's how I meant in the first place. But with that all being said, this is a roundabout way to be <laughs> talking about how the other part that you were mentioning was just the increase in speed yeah. in a lot of your workouts. So how would you compare and contrast some of what you were doing under her versus what you were doing previously? That's a good question. Um, I'd have to look back at my training plan, but I remember, I mean, it would be kind of like static, right? Like I feel like the way that McCurdy trained and, and ultimately then Sarah like builds their workouts, they're all very like cumulative, like one workout this week, you can easily tell how it builds into the following week's workout. And I think the volume of repeats and the speed at which you do them, I think is a lot higher and different than what I would be doing in my previous one. And I think, I think I was doing similar type of workouts like fart licks and one minute off, one minute on like two minute off, one minute on like doing all those types of like repeat workouts and, you know, 10 by four hundreds. But like here, it's just a lot more volume. Like I feel like in my previous training plan, my workout might've been eight miles total. Whereas like here on a Tuesday, I'll go casually do like a 12 mile track workout. And it's like, who, like what now I'm going to work. Like people, normal people don't do this. So I think the, yeah, that's quite, that's quite an adjective you used before that 12, <laughs> the casual 12 mile workout. Yeah. It like is, to, even, it's crazy. to even say that out louder to hear it must be wild. Yeah. It, it is quite crazy what starts becoming the norm, but um, I think it's just been kind of the volume and the, I think you can see the building blocks. Um, you know, one week you'll start at one minute, uh, like one minute hard at like really fast. And then the next week it'll be like two minutes or it'll be like four hundreds because they're quite similar to like a one minute. So it's, it's funny how the shifting between like the minutes versus four hundreds or eight hundreds, like, it changes you mentally because doing a, a one minute is for me kind of the same as running like a 300 on the track, but it's kind of like you sometimes get more nervous if you're like looking at 300s versus just one minute on one minute off. You know what I mean? So I think, I think they do a really good job of, of building kind of the building blocks that lead into the following week's workout, which you end up feeling stronger in that one based off of the workout that you did the previous week. So it, it all makes sense to me that's funny i have like the exact opposite feeling on that of like i'd rather have a distance than a time oh really because i just like i feel like the person trying to staring at the water going come on <laughs> yeah come on come on come on like, it's like what do you mean this has only been yeah, 20 seconds true. i swear to god this has been at least yeah. 45 yeah. and then whereas like the distance is kind of like all right here i go like i can just zone out you know it's like when am i done well i know when i'm done when i'm yeah. over there and I just like, I completely zone out for like the 400 or 800. Whereas like with the time-based part, I like can't get my mind off of the yeah, duration. Yeah, no, that's funny. I can see that. And then when you have these, this increase in pacing all the time, especially with workouts, you know, Sarah's legendary for, you know, she is an extremely hard worker, which I love about her. And, you know, she pushes people to be, you know, the hardest working version of themselves as they can be over a period of time. What was that like in terms of just acclimating to her style? Like, did you feel like 
after like three or four months, it just be not only did like the distances become normal, but the type of effort you put in, did that become normal? Like, were you able to like, all right, yeah, I did like, you know, 50 miles a week and I had these two really hard workouts, but it's not like I'm like dragging ass around the office. Like, this is just kind of like how I'm living. Yeah. So I think, um, I think I got quite okay with it early on where it started dragging was, I've never done back-to-back training like I have done with her. Like I started with her in March and I ran almost 60 miles on average each week until basically December CIM. Like I've never, I even did 60 miles when I was in Ireland for vacation. Like I've never been this committed and this dedicated to that high of mileage. Um, And so it definitely started wearing on me in the fall of last year, but I knew I, I, I knew I was so, in like I was so deep already that I couldn't like now back out and so I think for a while I just kept doing the mileage but those like middle of the week like the four days where I just have to run like eight miles those really really got to me um and it it started making me resent running um I just I couldn't take the monotony of like the eight mile run. Like I could, I was fine doing a a track workout or a different type of workout that yielded 10 to 12 miles, but it was those like monotonous everyday eight miles. That was like, I can't stomach to go out and run like another hour and 10 minutes. Um, and it ended up, I, I ran CIM really well, um, but I crossed the finish line. Yeah. 305. You killed it. Yeah. Yeah. I, Thank you. I, I, I feel like I didn't appreciate what I did that day. I finished and I was like, I don't feel happy. I don't feel, I feel proud, like from an like external perspective of like, that was a really good job. And you broke, you know, you, you dropped 18 minutes in your marathon. Like that's amazing. But there was this like missing happiness and spark. Um, And so it was kind of this like reevaluation, like Sarah was super happy, obviously. And I knew I should should in air quotes be really happy, but I wasn't. Um, and so that's when it really kind of called into, you know, my inner, I guess, inner being to be like, whoa, if this is this something that you're supposed to be doing that you've really dedicated 60 miles a week for the last nine months, like, and you're not happy with the result and you ran like this amazing time, like what is going on? Um, and so I had a really, you know, tough time going back because I had already signed up for Boston and I was like, Oh God, like, what am I going to do now? Um, and I also had missed, um, the whole time I'd also wanted to get a half marathon PR. And I, there was a race that I ran in November and it ended up being cut short due to course mismanagement, I'll call it. And, um, I ended up, I read that, I read that post. I felt so bad. Yeah. So it was like 11, you were really fit, man. Yeah. Yeah. It was like 11.8 miles or something like that. And it was a super hilly course and I was like crushing 645 paces. And I was like, Oh my God, you've got to be kidding me. So, um, I was like, I'm going to use the spring to scale back training and just focus on the half marathon. Um, but then I was like really fit kind of feeling. And then I was like, whatever, I'm just going to go for it at Boston and see what happens. So I basically had kind of a meltdown in like February and called Sarah and was like, I can't do this anymore. Like I need to have more balance in my life at this point. Work was really, really stressful. Um, as our fiscal year had like just turned over. So it was a new leaf and people were like, what have you done for me lately? And I was like, I just closed so many deals for you in January. Don't you remember? (laughs) Um, and, uh, so it was a really stressful time of year for me in general. 
Um, and so I called her and I was like, I can't do this. Like I am going to die. And she was like, let's scale back. Like, so we scaled back my training a lot, which ended up making my Boston, obviously not as strong as it could have been. But I mean, I was at the brink of like basically throwing in the towel altogether. But then I was like, listen, I'm going to finish this out. Like I need to, I need to find some balance. So that was basically the culmination of all that year, like that year long of training that really put me over the edge. So to, to answer your question, it like was it bearable for a while, but then it, it really got to be too much. And when you're talking about the work running balance that you have to go through, um, you, you have, you have a very demanding job. You have a sales job that requires a lot of travel, a lot of, you know, a lot of deadlines. It's uh, it's just a stressful gig. That's for sure. And, when you're trying to balance the, you know, really hard training that's very goal centric with that, what have you learned about kind of the, the ways in which it works for you and ways in which you've had to improve um, just how you make it work? Yeah. I mean, I think, honestly, I think the two feed into each other really nicely. Um, I think when I'm doing really well in my running, it feeds into me feeling more confident at work and vice versa. If I'm doing really well at work, um, it feeds into me feeling more energized and wanting to go run. Um, I think where it really, you know, gets hard is obviously when you have bad days in either one of those. Um, but I think running overall has just taught me again to, you know, I think it's Des that would say like, keep showing up, like you're going to have bad days. You're going to have great days. Um, but and and especially that's so true in sales, like there's going to be times where things are out of my hands and a, and a deal falls through or, a, you know, a customer gets upset or mad or, you know, whatever. But it's like just keep showing up, trying your best and, and find the silver lining is kind of the main thing that pulls me, you know, out of my ruts, whether it's running or work related. But where I, I've really tried to find the balance is like knowing especially this spring where it's been so new for me I just started this job in July of last year so I haven't really been in there for a full year yet but um work is obviously my number one priority I wish running was but um right now it has to be work related so it was running had to take a back seat here um but I've found a lot of I've actually spoken to a lot of um good friends I know you've had Nick on this show but he's been really helpful to me we've spoken a lot um just about balance and you really finding like the joy in running and kind of remembering why we do this again is been a really good reminder for me um so I ran Boston with a lot more um I guess smile and cheer and it, it I it, I ran great I positive split like crazy but I think I had so much more fun than I did at CIM, even though I yielded a far better time at CIM. So I think there's a balance for sure, but recognizing that um, it all really comes down to like what you're willing to do. So while I was upset that I didn't hit my 303 or break three hours at Boston, like I recognized that I wasn't willing to put in the work and the training this spring that it probably took to get to that time. Um, and that's be not because I was lazy or anything. It's just because my priorities were elsewhere. Um, and I think that's the really important and healthy way to look at things is if you recognize that you're either willing or you're not willing to do something. Um, I think that takes kind of the victim, victim feeling out of it all. Like, oh, why couldn't I have done that? Like, look at these other girls who ran so much faster than me. Um, take yourself out of it. Like you're either were willing to put in the time. And at that point I wasn't like sleep was more important. Feeling caught up on work was more important. And, and that's how it went. So. And with all due respect, you had a really good race. 
right? I mean, I think you there can be an argument could be made that your Boston experience wasn't a whole lot different than your CIM performance when you take everything into account, like the, the kind of course it was, the conditions and the conditions on that day. I mean, CIM was like perfect yeah. weather and and like a downhill yeah. course. Whereas Boston, obviously, is a net downhill, but it's it's a challenging course for sure. And the weather was not ideal, as most people did not reach their goals. And some people didn't even come close to their goals, even very experienced yeah. runners. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm happy with my performance at Boston. I, I think where it just gets a little awkward is like when you co- I, I came across the half at like 131 and change. Um, and then the second half of the race, I basically spent it calculating okay, how slow can I run my second half marathon and still break 310? Like, what do I need to do to still make it under at least 310? Um, And so that's never a fun position to be in. It's like when you start feeling like your body is degrading and and you're not being powerful and feeling like you're really like uh, owning the course. I think the course owned me the second half. And that's just the big difference of what I felt at CIM, like CIM, I felt super strong all the way through, like probably mile 22, 23. And I think that's just a testament to the training and, and likely the easier course. Um, I know some people think CIM is harder, but in my, in my perspective, I think Boston's a lot more challenging. So um, the second half of Boston was just more of a struggle, but it kind of reframed my perspective during the race of like, Hey, I should be grateful that I'm even out here and able to run, that I get to run this course. Look at all these people who've come out to cheer for us. Um, just shifting my perspective to that and being grateful that I even got to run kind of took away from the fact that I positive split by eight minutes. But um, I'm still really happy with my 309. I think it's an awesome time for that day. But um, ultimately, I would prefer to be more closer aligned with kind of the the even splits. But, you know, you can't be perfect. So. Yeah, that's for sure. And I was actually talking to Sarah today, and she she mentioned one anecdote that I thought thought was pretty telling. And you've kind of alluded to it in ways during this conversation. It seems like you've been more, at the time you were more excited to break three forty than you have been to kind of like as you're kind of approaching three hours. And with that in mind, and knowing that like in the past you've had you know you kind of burned out from running before and feeling how you felt recently, what are some of the things that you're trying to do or thinking about to kind of keep the kind of keep the joy involved with what you're doing? Cause obviously you love it and you want to experience it in the best way possible. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to, I think I was listening to Colleen Quigley. I forget on what podcast, um, but she basically said like, if it's not fun, then like, why are you doing it? And I think that was the big kind of like, not wake up call, but it was a good reminder that it's really kind of stuck with me for a long time. Um, so I've been kind of more just trying to look at a run as something that's enjoyable and something that I get to do. Again, I love doing my workouts. I love going to the track or, you know, whatever it is for, for a kind of longer, harder workout style, but it's those monotonous runs that kind of get to me. Cause it's just like grinding out the miles, but Um, with, I got a puppy last year and now he's kind of almost a year old. So he's into running now a little bit. So I've been able to go out with him and run, which has been a nice way to kind of change things up. And also just kind of looking at things again in a different perspective, like looking at it as I get to run instead of I have to run. 
Um, I don't, I don't know if I'll ever feel as hungry as I did when I wanted to BQ for the first time. I just think that was a physical barrier that was like, never felt achievable to me. And, um, I kind of like, I don't want to sound confident that I feel like I'll break three hours, but I, 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 I'm so close to it now that it's like, I know it'll take so much work and I'll be really happy if I do it, but that it feels more achievable than what Boston felt like when I was at 342. So I don't, I don't know. It's this weird thing that I can't explain why I I'm definitely fueled and like interested in trying to break three hours. That sounds so bad, but um, it didn't fuel me as much as, um, for whatever reason, like breaking that Boston barrier for the first time. Right. And it's not as if you only have to do marathons. Yeah. Right. Like, have you ever considered, you know, just doing, you know, like, I know your 5k PR is like 1931, which is a wonderful time, but one that doesn't really align with like, say, your current yeah. have you ever thought about like, just like going on like a spree <laughs> of like, Hey, I'm going to do shorter races and just change the whole, change the whole oh, game. Five K's are brutal. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I Dude, I don't know if they're more brutal than doing the New York and Philly marathons within the three weeks. Man. Dude, I would do that hands, hands over. Um, but I, so I ran 1959 was my 5k PR in high school. And again, I thought that was something I would never, ever come close to. And so for me to, and I ran 1931 on a long course. So I think my actual like watch PR is like close to 19 flat, like 1907 or something like that. So I'm now kind of like, mm, I kind of want to break that 19 barrier, but um, I think I'll try and do that in the summer time frame, just because it's nice to switch it up and get a little bit more speed on my legs. But um, I don't think I can sustainably run marathons like this for the foreseeable future, just knowing, you know, my work and everything else that I like doing in life. Um, but I do want to give it a go at CIM this fall. And if I break it, great. I know people are like, oh, well, then you're going to want to break 255. <laughs> um, but so we'll see how it comes. But I, I know I needed balance for sure. And I think that's the best part of having a coach like Sarah. She's been super understanding and kind of really makes it flexible to knowing that I've got other priorities. And, um, and, and that's been great. So I'll kind of take it as it comes. But yeah. No, I appreciate it. I, I love your perspective on this because you're someone who – not only, obviously, is a really good speaker, um, certainly far better speaker than the host. No, As no, no. Listening to this can attest. But, but you're, you're very thoughtful, and I feel like I really appreciate how you're talking about things that, um, you know, just the way you're feeling about things that ha- it's not like they've already played themselves out. Yeah. Right? It's not as if, like, you're referencing, like, hey, I felt this way 10 years ago, and then I got through it. It's like, hey, man, I'm feeling that way mm-hmm. now. And like, I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I'm just trying to figure it out as I go. So I know that can be a challenging thing, especially when it's tied to something that you spend a lot of time on and have a lot of, a lot of emotional investment. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so, it's so tied to us. Like, right. I, I identify myself as a marathoner. It makes me very proud to say I'm a marathoner and that I've, you know, that I'm running in Boston and that I'm running in these different races. But at some point, um, and I know my parents would want me to stop marathoning today if I would, if I could, but um, I know it's not sustainable forever, at least at this kind of threshold. Um, but it's fun for now and, and we'll see what happens uh, in December again. There you go. And we'll see what happens this weekend. What's it, do, you, do, you have, do you have the race plan all set up? What's going on? <laughs> um, no. Sarah was like, I think you can run well. I, I don't know if you can run great after Boston, but I think you can run well. Um, so I love her kind of transparency there. Um, it, I, I'm hoping to, honestly, my first run back was yesterday, 30 minutes long. So I haven't done much 
since Boston, but I kind of wanted to take a little bit of a, a detox. And also I was moving houses in between all of this, um, which was chaotic, but I'm hoping to PR from last year. So I'm hoping to go sub 653, but I also don't know what my body's going to say if I'm throwing it into another race. Um, so I'll be smart about it. And if I, you know, if I feel anything wrong, my glute, my right glute seized up in, you know, the last like 10 miles of Boston. So I've been trying to roll it out, but it might come back to haunt me, but I'm hoping to, it's such a fun race. Um, so I'm more just doing it to kind of be out there and love it and be in my hometown. So uh, hoping to have a a goal in smiling and having fun and a B goal in hopefully PRing. All right. Well, this episode is going to come out before you do that race. So everyone who's listening to it now, go check out Michelle. See how she did this weekend. Michelle, thank you so much for coming on the show. I was been waiting a while to have you on, and it was definitely worth it. Thank you so thanks, much. Thanks, Matt. I had a lot of fun. So thanks for having me on. Thank you, Michelle, for coming on the podcast. This was great. This is somebody who I had a chance to meet at CIM. I've stayed in contact with, and I was so excited to have her on the show. Thanks again, Mercury Mile and Megaton Coffee, continuing to support the Rambling Runner podcast. And the best thing you can do for the show is to support them. MercuryMile.com, MegatonCoffee.com. You will not be disappointed. In fact, you'll love it. I guarantee it. Well, I can't guarantee it, but I have a strong feeling that you're really going to like it. Thanks again for everybody for rating, reviewing, and sharing the show. It means so much to me. It really does. So with that all being said, thanks again and happy running.